G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Many thanks for listening, and, and make sure that you hit the subscribe button on your uh, fruit-based device so you can make sure you get the latest RVC Clinical Pod. We'd greatly appreciate a moment of your time to go to iTunes and give us a review. Obviously, five stars would be, would be great. Um, if you have any topics that you would like uh, us to discuss or comment suggestions on the show, you can tweet me at Don Barfield, uh, or you can email me at dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk. So today we're lucky to speak to Dr. Joe Fenn, a lecturer in neurology and neurosurgery here at the Royal Vet College. Joe is a wide variety of interest in his specialised area from conditions such as ischemic myelopathy and acute non-compressive nuclear proposis exclusion. And now he's the lead surgeon of our diabetes remission clinic, removing pituitary glands in acromegalic cats. Today we're going to talk to Joe about presentation management of acute vestibular disease. Thanks for coming along and hello Joe. Hello. Also, uh, I should say hello to Jason Isaacs. Yes, you should. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so maybe um, we could. I could first ask you generally um, if we could explain like the difference between peripheral and central vestibular disease, please. Yeah. So I guess that vestibular disease in general in dogs and cats presents with a particular sort of syndrome or clinical signs that um, represent a disorder of um, equilibrium and balance, um, regardless of a central or peripheral cause. We're looking at a situation where an animal is losing balance and that's going to be manifested in similar ways. Um, so that could include head tilt, uh, nystagmus, falling to one side, uh, generalised ataxia with those sorts of features. Um, but I guess that one of the key questions we ask whenever we have a vestibular animal, like you say, is, is it central or peripheral? And uh, in terms of the differences, we know that in some cases we're not going to be able to make that distinction based on their examination. But there are some key characteristics that we see with central vestibular signs. So essentially we're looking at anything that tells us that their lesion can be localized to their brainstem in that region. So we might be talking about augmentation. Uh, proprioceptive deficits ipsilaterally, so on the same side as the head tilt, uh, or we might be talking about multiple cranial nerve deficits other than those in the immediate area, such as the facial nerve, which could be affected by anything that's affecting the vestibular nerve peripherally. So we have multiple cranial nerve deficits, and we had other signs of central involvement, such as reduced mentation or postural deficits on the side that we're seeing the head tilt to, then we'd be more concerned about a central vestibular disease. And so when you approach these patients, do you, do you have like a, um, you, obviously you always do a neurological examination, yeah. but do you, do, you, do you focus it more and ask, are you asking yourself, is it central or, or uh, peripheral? And these are the key things that I'm looking at. So you said like the ipsilateral proprioceptive deficits. Is that, is that one of the key things you think that, that marks that? difference between them yeah i guess and um yeah we're always looking at it in the broader context of the rest of the neurological examination um and once we made that localization to a peripheral uh, well a vestibular disease on one side of the animal then it is always our next question is do we have any evidence of any central involvement and often that the answer to that is no um but i guess that what's important is that we don't then say we've definitely got a peripheral vestibular disease because there are some lesions that may cause um, vestibular signs in the CNS, but not actually manifest in those deficits. So I guess one of the key tenets when we're talking about localization of, of vestibular disease is that if we find those central deficits, we can definitively say that an animal has a central vestibular disease. 
If we don't find them, we can only say we haven't got evidence of it. We can never 100% nail down our localization to peripheral vestibular because it is possible to have some silent lesions within the CNS in terms of other signs. And, and you said, too, when, we're, when we examine these, uh, these patients, obviously we're looking at the head tilt, which is normally towards the, the site of the, of the, of the lesion. N- nystagmus, can that be any sort of nystagmus, or, or are we more focusing on horizontal, vertical? Or? Yeah, so there are various types of nystagmus that we see. Um, clinically, we see some more than others, um, typically properly associating vestibular signs with a horizontal nystagmus. And we can categorize our nystagmus as being either spontaneous uh, or where, when it is present immediately when you look at the dog, or positional, where it's induced by certain positions. Uh, it can also be a conjugate or disconjugate nystagmus. If both eyes are doing different things, oh, okay. it could be disconjugate. <laughs> and um, we can also talk about a um, pendular nystagmus, where the movements are the same rate in both sides, or a jerk nystagmus, where we've got a fast phase one way and a slow phase the other way, which is what we most commonly see. And uh, I guess in terms of their direction, if we have a horizontal nystagmus, then we tend to associate the direction as being the fast phase away from the lesion. Okay. So, so just to reiterate, I think you said, said before, so if we're thinking more about differentiation between central and peripheral, so it, it, it's, it's more to do with that with the postural reactions and conscious proprioception and also you said at, at the start there's like a, um, a level of mentation so they're they're less aware in general yeah is exactly that, is that across the board is i know it's mm-hmm. something that's been written but is that is that an experiential thing as well it's, it's probably one of the harder things to assess because i guess most um severely vestibular animals are not going to be in a great place and in terms of level of mentation, the other question we always ask ourselves is, is that appropriate or inappropriate? And if you have an animal that is feeling quite nauseous because they've got a severe vestibular signs, uh, is generally feeling kind of unwell, then they're probably going to have an appropriately lower level of mentation. So that can be quite a subjective assessment. So I think things that are a bit more objective, like the postural reactions, are probably something that's better to rely on in terms of making that differentiation. There have been suggested some sort of differences in type of nystagmus with regards to central and peripheral vestibular syndromes, but that doesn't seem to hold up that well repeatedly. And uh, it does seem like, although it was originally thought that a vertical nystagmus is a sign of a central vestibular lesion, that may well be the case, but sometimes it is quite difficult to differentiate between some very narrow rotatory nystagmus uh, compared to a vertical nystagmus, so sometimes it's the hardest, harder thing to rely on. Uh, but we do typically associate a purely vertical nystagmus with being more likely representative of central vestibular syndrome, but probably not enough to rely on. So the type of the nystagmus can be quite variable with peripheral or central, but it does seem that it's more likely that if we have a purely vis- vertical nystagmus, that might be more likely to be associated with a central vestibular lesion but we can't rely on it so that's why we look at the postural reactions and and so in that in that um in that line then are the postural reactions more of your 
differentiating it with a clinical patient uh, for central um, versus uh, mm. peripheral vestibular disease and other cranial nerve deficits essentially okay. yeah excellent excellent that, that's uh, that, that's really really useful so so do you have a, a different approach um, obviously I, I know we work in a referral institution so we, we tend to sort of cross the T's and, and dot the I's but do you have a different approach if you if you think it's more uh, of a, a peripheral vestibular disease than than central I guess the difficulty there is that, um, as we kind of discussed with regards to localization, we can never be 100% sure that we've got a peripheral vestibular syndrome. We can be quite suspicious based on the clinical presentation and their examination that we're more likely to look at a peripheral vestibular case. But I think in those situations, we always have to inform the owners. And I think at each level that we can't be 100% certain unless we've done intracranial investigations that we don't have one of these kind of rarer central lesions where we don't pick up those signs and they can actually manifest similarly to a peripheral vestibular syndrome. So I guess the difference would be that if we do pick up those signs that make us very suspicious, either very abnormal mentation, ipsilateral postural deficits or multiple cranial nerve deficits, then we can be much more stronger in our recommendation that we do advanced imaging or intracranial investigations. So if you think they're more peripheral, um, do, you, do you always get a notice out and have a look down the years? I think it's definitely worthwhile doing because we know that probably um, in terms of our most common peripheral vestibular differential diagnoses, as well as we often see a lot of idiopathic cases where we never find anything, but the most common underlying disease we're going to see is otitis media interna. And so, yeah, I think it's one of those things that we can do at any stage first opinion practice anywhere we can look down years and, and establish whether we've got any evidence of otitis externa which might make us a little bit more suspicious of that as a cause for peripheral vestibular syndrome so it's definitely something to look for and I guess on that front we might be more pointed towards looking at years if we have other signs that we can attribute to the middle ear area such as facial paresis or Horner syndrome. Okay, thank you. Um, and with the, the Horner syndrome, is, is, is that uh, on the side of the, the lesion as, as well? Yeah, exactly. If we're talking about a um, otitis media interna, then we know that other neuro deficits that we can get on that same side would be anything that neurologically that is running in that region, and that does include, yeah, a third order Horner syndrome or facial paresis. So, so say, Joe, if I if I took you out of our, uh, our ivory tower, no, it's not an ivory tower. Mm-hmm. But if, if I took you out of there and and, uh, and you were, you, were, you were seeing a uh, a vestibular case that you thought was more peripheral in the in the in the uh, in the general practice environment, so and we had maybe some limited uh, funds. Like, so, what would your approach be in 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 that situation? Yeah, so I think it's key really to be as thorough as we can with our general physical and neurological examinations at that point because if we can pick up any evidence that makes us concerned about central vestibular disease then we're going to have vastly different differential diagnoses and potentially vastly different prognosis as well Um, and I guess if we can be kind of comfortable that we don't see any of those signs and we have an animal that fits the profile for one of the differentials for a peripheral vestibular disease then we might either be able to treat presumptively if we've got you know no ability of doing further diagnostic tests or um, investigations or referral whereas if we have that central localization then we can be a lot stronger in our recommendations for the owner 
Mm-hmm. And would you see if would you think about taking radiographs to examine the the bulla if you thought it was peripheral and you you were in a general practice environment or or how or do you think that's maybe not as useful because i think yeah. looking with a otoscope obviously can't necessarily differentiate uh, um, any sort of involvement of mm. nuclear infection unless you have a gaping hole or pus coming out of the yeah. tympanic membrane i always mm. found um you know looking down the ears particularly if you do have some otitis like, yeah. unrewarding initially right? so you start treating it and then yeah and it can be quite difficult i guess because it's, it's not the easiest imaging modality to to actually nail down like i i really found that difficult in practice doing um open mouth radiographs to look at a bully and um i think that interpretation of those can be quite difficult it's definitely an option and it's something that can be done in first opinion practice to image that area but i guess you kind of have to ask yourself how confident you're going to be in interpreting those and it might be that based on your examination you've got such a high index of suspicion if the other ear is completely normal we've got severe otitis on one side then um then i guess that your index suspicion is going to be very different to other cases where by you're not seeing quite so clear signs on the outside okay so if we're going to play like a a, a numbers game you know mm. of, the, of the cases that sort of come in to, to see us if we if we think they have more peripheral signs so say that, that the most most common cause of that is is an idiopathic uh, vestibular disease it, it, idiopathic in in my mind it kind of means like we've ruled out everything else but is, is that what people have actually done like to you know have have we all revisited all these previous studies and actually uh and thought well maybe, maybe they could have had something going on here yeah it's quite difficult because i guess that a lot of these um initial work probably with idiopathic vestibular syndrome would have been done when we weren't so able to do such fast investigations and i think that we do find with some of these idiopathic uh, cranial neuropathies that we see, such as vestibular syndrome, facial neuropathy, trigeminal neuropathy. We start to do more and more advanced tests in some of these guys, and we can pick up slight abnormalities in their MRI scans, for example. Some of these nerves might be contrast-enhancing or slightly thickened on, on MRI. It's very difficult for us to ever really know histopathologically what's going on with these mm. cases, because a lot of them do so well without treatment that we don't ever end up getting histopathology samples. It's a difficult area to access anyway, and we're quite unlikely to be getting sort of post-mortem examinations on them as well. So it's difficult to know exactly what's going on in them. Um, but essentially, yes, quite a lot of cases that we, we do quite extensive investigations and work up on, we don't, we don't find any uh, cause, and we, we label them as idiopathic, and I think it certainly is possible that there's something else going on in those situations. I mean, people with facial paralysis where they don't find a cause when they call it Bell's palsy will be treated with corticosteroids um, because there seems to be an inflammation in the nerve and, and they improve better. We know that doesn't seem to be the case in animals if we treat many of these idiopathic cranial neuropathies with steroids, it doesn't seem to make any difference. So yeah, we don't, we don't really understand exactly what's going on with these, with these guys, but they, they seem to improve quite well. So what are your thoughts? I've read as well that uh, um, that some people, not, not necessarily advocate, but then potentially empirical antibiotic therapy because uh, of a differential of otitis internal media is quite high, then maybe we should give them that. Do you have any 
thoughts on that or i guess yeah i think we have to be a little bit careful um on that front because realistically unless we've got some evidence to back it up it's it's not really something that we want to go around giving empirical antibiotics to things just on the off chance that they they have an otitis and um i think that uh we we can in most cases achieve a diagnosis of, of otitis media interna um, with our relevant diagnostic tests if we achieve that diagnosis and they and they need that treatment then that's fine um but i guess until we get to that point it's definitely not something that we'd want to just just start treating on the presumption okay so uh, um so obviously if if, if patients are, are referred or, or um uh, you know we see, see them to the neurology and neurosurgery service um would your go-to be more for for ad- advanced imaging obviously if you if you wanted to help differentiate would that be more mri or, or more ct or or does it depend yeah it's kind of um it can be a difficult one that that decision and uh, I think that as neurologists we're kind of inherently a little bit more familiar with MRI and we're a little bit more reassured by MRI because we can see the CNS tissue so much better and um, MR does have some advantages over CT in that aspect in that if we are really wanting to rule out central vestibular disease then MRI is going to be far more sensitive than CT for imaging that region also, we're looking at the caudal fossa when we're doing this, and um, uh, CT suffers from some quite marked artifacts in the caudal fossa region, so it can be a little bit more difficult to convincingly rule out a central disease using a CT. Having said that, if we are very suspicious of uh, otitis media interna, then CT has some advantages in the sense of its ability to look at the bone structure of the bulla and the middle ear, which can be kind of useful for surgeons if we're planning for surgery. Um, so some situations they will they may end up having both. Um, but I think that our viewpoint is that if we are wanting to convincingly exclude the possibility of a central lesion, then MRI is going to have advantages in allowing us to image the brain in better detail. And and when you do an MRD, do you always uh, um, do a, a CSF tap of, of these patients? Yeah, that's also a difficult one in some cases because um, I guess if we have any lesions on the MRI scan that suggest central nervous system involvement, then we will, unless we've got a contraindication, definitely be uh, recommending a CSF tap to try and see whether we've got signs of inflammation, neoplastic cells, or just a normal CSF. In those cases where we don't find anything, then it's definitely a decision that we take with the owners with regards to whether we do a CSF tap or not. It is possible that some uh, cranial neuritis cases, for example, which would be an uncommon thing to see, we might pick up inflammatory cells from the CSF. Uh, Some inflammatory CNS diseases will have a normal MRI scan, but then we'll pick up abnormalities on their CSF tap. So there are some arguments both ways, but CSF taps do come with some degree of risk. And if we've got a normal MRI scan otherwise, in a case where we were suspicious that it could be idiopathic from the start, then it wouldn't be wrong if the owners were concerned about the risks of CSF tap not to do it. Okay. And um, uh, it's probably hard to, to put you on the spot, but but if you don't necessarily see anything uh, on an MR and you, and you do take a CSF tap, do you know like roughly... Um, how many actually show show something? It would be, it would be very, very few very of key. the idiopathic cases would yeah. have a CSF um, abnormality. Okay. So cases where we've not seen anything, 
Yeah. In terms of inflammatory CNS disease, in terms of so meningoencephalitis of unknown origin, um, GME type conditions, then it can be up to a third of cases will have no MRI lesions at all. And then we might still diagnose inflammatory disease on CSF tap. But your index of suspicion would be very much based on their clinical presentation signalment as to whether that was a consideration. And, that, and that's, a, that's a good point. Um, so, so I suppose our, our, our two doctor differentials for any sort of, video, uh, sorry, any sort of uh, uh, vestibular disease would be um, uh, otitis media interna and, and idiopathic vestibular um, disease. Is that, is that So fair? I guess they're two most common um, situations we're presented with. A few cases will have neoplasia as well in that region. Mm. If we're talking vestibular, uh, peripheral vestibular disease, then we're talking about any lesion that can affect from the vestibular nerve out to its ganglion and then to the receptor in the inner ear. So any inflammatory disease that can affect that area, such as otitis media interna or abscesses uh, or neoplasia or in some cases, we see cranial neuropathy secondary to metabolic diseases such as hypothyroidism. So that's something that we would always check for in these guys. And that can be done with, you know, relatively simple blood tests. That's something that's always worth doing. And, uh, and I guess that they're the main sort of things that we consider in terms of peripheral vestibular syndrome. But I guess that in those cases, we're not going to have been able to exclude the possibility of central vestibular disease. So there's a whole different list for the central vestibular disease. So it causes an effect of hypothyroidism. So how, how, how kind of does that work? Sorry yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, not really clear okay. at the moment <laughs> as to how that actually happens. And there's been a lot of um, hypotheses regarding whether it is to do with, um, I guess, myxomatous thickening around the cranial nerves as they exit the skull. Potentially, they're actually being compressed by some thickening of the nerve or whether it's actually metabolic at the cellular level within the nerve. We're not 100% sure on that front. So, so in, in my mind, the, the vestibular disease normally acute in presentation. Mm-hmm. It's odd for something to be more chronic or insidious in, in, in its yep. uh, pathogenesis and then have, a, have an acute um, issue. But, but it, it, it's interesting. I wonder whether yeah, our and, understanding and, of that will change over time. Yeah, and I think that certain um, considerations on a differential level would be much less likely if we've got a very acute onset, such as the hypothyroidism in a very peracute onset of vestibular signs would be less likely, whereas a very hyperacute onset of signs would be quite suggestive for an idiopathic condition because they come on very suddenly. But also vascular disease. Well, is, uh, thank you, thank you for bringing up vascular disease because I was just going to ask you: mm. Do you think uh, uh, imaging modalities now are probably better to pick up vascular disease, and, and maybe that accounts a bit more for for the previous sort of idiopathic classification of of, of uh, some of the presentation of of these uh, dogs? It's it's possible. Um, I guess that when we're talking about vascular disease in this sense, we're most often talking about a central vestibular. Uh, localization. Uh, it's possible to have um, either ischemic or hemorrhagic infarcts in the brainstem at that level or in the cerebellum, which has contributions to the vestibular system. And we can see those guys present with a very sudden onset as well. And I guess the nature of a vascular lesion is that it can be very discrete and small and asymmetrical and therefore it's possible that it causes a vestibular signs from a very focal lesion and therefore doesn't cause so many of the other telltale central vestibular signs so it's something that we will be looking for when we're doing an mri scan for an animal 
with a vestibular um, localization. And yeah, sometimes we'll, we'll pick up uh, infarcts on MRI that we weren't able to see before. Okay, so if if we um, have a have a, a diagnosis, say if you like, of of uh, um, say canine idiopathic peripheral vestibular disease, do you, do you have any particular sort of treatments for for them? It is generally going to be symptomatic, and I think that one of the most important things with these guys is that they can present looking very very severely abnormal and really struggling to walk. And they're often kind of older animals as well. Most often we used to call it a geriatric thing. And um, I guess that there can be a, a concern at the start about prognosis in these guys when, when actually their prognosis is, is really excellent with supportive care. There's no specific treatment, but I guess that we have considerations with regards to nausea and supportive care, nutrition, fluid status. And those are the things that we need to consider. Uh, so most often then we will be treating with antiemetics, um, intravenous fluids if they are not able to maintain their own hydration and supportive care, which might include physiotherapy or helping them to get up and about. And they, they can take a bit of persevering and it can take them a week or two to get going again, but they, they generally have an excellent prognosis. And I think it's important to remember that despite how severe they look, that doesn't necessarily imply their prognosis is worse. So it's like a tincture of time, isn't it, that has a, yeah. has a benefit. With, with regard to anti-nausea medication, do, do you have a, a I suppose, meropotent is, is something that, that we, you know, we tend to use in the uh, ER and ICU, but I know that uh, throughout the hospital we, we you know, we have a <laughs> different options. And yeah. do, do you start off with, with that normally? Is that Yeah, and I think, yeah, I guess lately meropotent's been quite an attractive option. Um, it seems to act as an antiemetic at a central and peripheral um, level as well, which is quite useful. Um, maybe it has some anti-nausea properties as well as anti-emetic properties. Um, there's quite a lot of debate as to whether what's the best anti-nausea or anti-emetic uh, drugs at the moment. Um, there's certainly some ongoing trials that we have in the hospital with regards to looking at ondansetron, which is often used a lot as a very effective anti-emetic in oncology patients receiving chemotherapy. Uh, it may be that that becomes our go-to antiemetic in the future, uh, but we're most familiar with, with meropotent at the moment, and uh, we find that that use, it, it's very useful in these cases. I suppose, uh, thanks. The, the, the other thing that I forgot to uh, ask about is, is ototoxicity. So uh, is, is that something we, we actually see quite a bit? I know, I know it's always you know, drummed in, I remember, from pharmacology when actually I was taught by Joel Manson back in the day, but uh, in, a, in, uh, in a different country. However, um, you know, aminoglycosides causing ototoxicity. But do, do, we, do we see that now or is the recognition of that quite common yeah. that we don't? go down that path yeah and i think that that's definitely something that we we have on that list of um of acute onset peripheral vestibular syndromes that we see and but like you say i think it is it is a lot rarer now as far as i'm aware um and i guess we don't we don't typically see them very often and i guess in most situations it's kind of going to have been red flagged or on the list straight away when you when we see it when you're aware of an animal that's has been receiving this sort of medications before 
we don't use a lot of amino glycosides um, these days in small animal practice, I guess. And uh, and I guess, though, it's definitely something that we need to check when we have an acute onset of vestibular signs that they haven't been receiving any ototoxic or potentially toxic medications. And that, and that goes for the central vestibular signs as well with regards to any medications that they've been receiving because we know that animals that have had metronidazole at higher than normal doses or for slightly longer than normal are at risk of developing central vestibular signs. So there are some toxicities. Thankfully, we don't see them that often now. They're quite dramatic, though, aren't they? It seems like the metronidazole toxicity in the... um it was quite uh, quite dramatic, but also its recovery was 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 phenomenal as well. Yeah, so, yeah. so uh, no, absolutely one of those one of those things. So if if we was going to uh, recap uh, just just briefly, I think it's trying to differentiate between sort of central and, and peripheral vestibular disease, and maybe the postural reactions are probably the, the most go to. But it's very difficult to definitively say, probably without advanced imaging, um, yeah. of of actually what what's what's going on, and and thereby it's it's working out the. Uh, um, uh, it's, it's, it's then trying to get a diagnosis to work on the on the prognosis. But if we think about you know acute uh, um, uh, vestibular disease, per, sorry, acute, um, canine idiopathic peripheral vestibular disease, then actually the the, the prognosis is pretty good. We just need a tincture of time and and uh, um, and and go go from go from there. And however dramatic they are at the start, yeah. then then always always give them time and supportive care. Yeah, because I guess most animals that present with uh, strictly a vestibular syndrome, even if it doesn't turn out to be an idiopathic peripheral, uh, a lot of them have a diagnosis that's very manageable and treatable, and a lot of them will have a good outcome. So it is one not to be too scared of. Absolutely. Well, I think we'll probably uh, um, leave it there then, Jay. So, so many thanks again for your time today. And, and obviously, thank you to our listeners for subscribing. And don't forget to tell your friends, preferably those in the veterinary field. Um, and it'd be great if you could take a couple of minutes and leave us a review on iTunes. So we'll place some show notes to the RVC pages. So it's probably easier just to type in RVC and clinical podcasts into your search engine. Um, and it should be uh, a, a top hit. So until next time, tickety-tonk, cold fruit and down with the Nazis. Exactly.